The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. A reading from the book of 2 Kings. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozin, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning what the Lord had commanded them, that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the Psalms. We will read this together, and you don't need to say the Selah on verse 3. <laughs> May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from Mizraim and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. 
May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of the Lord God who set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> A reading from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. For everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been built and founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and it was a great fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord, we do agree together and celebrate together that you are good. We pray, Lord, that we would, um, uh, through your spirit, uh, be responsive to all the good gifts um, you give us, and in particular to your word. Um, Help us to uh, be hearers and doers of your word, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
can be seated. I just want to read again some of the words of Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings. Regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. We hear in that psalm the, some of the many things that the Lord does. He protects, he helps, he supports, he remembers, he regards with favor, he grants, he fulfills, he saves. When you read a psalm like Psalm 20, right, which just was sort of overflowing with this is who our Lord is, this is how good he is, this is how generous he is, or we have to ask the question, why would we worship any other God? Why would it be a temptation to us to go after false gods when the true God, the God we know, is like this? And yet we know it is a temptation because God tells us so. We're in a series where we're looking at the Ten Commandments. Um, last week we began the series, giving, uh, gave sort of an overview of the Ten Commandments and spoke about how those first words in introducing the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, as they're called in scriptures, that begins with the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God. These commandments grow out of who I am. You should listen to them and obey them because I'm God and I'm telling you to obey them. And in giving us then the first commandment, what we're uh, thinking about today, you shall have no other gods before me, basically God is saying, I know you will be tempted to have other gods before me. Right? He's naming that reality. I know that you are going to be tempted to chase after other gods, and I'm telling you, don't do it. But why, again, would that ever be a temptation? I want to consider a little bit today, although it's not necessarily a fun thing to consider, I think it's an important thing to consider, what do these false gods offer us? What actually are we sort of, um, what's the appeal to go after a false god when, again, we can know and be in relationship with the true God? Before we think of a, a couple of appeals, again, that false gods give us, I just want to think a little bit more about this commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And maybe we hear this commandment and we think, you know, that's strange that the Lord would say that because he's the only God, right? The nation of Israel who first received these um, commandments, they were monotheistic. They only believed in one God. We only believe in one God. God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but one God, right? That's core to our faith. And so why would God say, no other gods before me, when there are no other gods? Right? But it's important to remember the original context, and actually we see this in our current context as well, that Israel is surrounded by nations that worshiped other gods. Right? This was the language, right? this was the air that they breathed. There are all sorts of other gods out there. They had names, right? we hear some of them, Baal, Asherah. Right? That's, that's what they saw all around them. And this is coming right after they have been set free from slavery in hundreds of years of being in Egypt and under Egyptian authority. And Egypt had many other gods. And so they would have heard there's no other gods before, they, and they could have thought of, oh yeah, we know all the other gods out there. But of course, in setting the nation of, uh, the people of Israel from, free from the nation of Egypt, our God had shown himself as the only true God, very clearly and powerfully to them. 
One of the ways he does that is through the ten plagues. If you remember the story, right? Ten plagues are poured out, right? They come against Egypt. And you've probably heard, if you've ever heard any teaching on the ten plagues, those correspond to the different false gods of Egypt. Right? And so they worship the sun god, Ra, and, and believed, you know, in the power of Ra. And so one of the plagues is darkness. God is making it clear. I am the God who created the sun. I'm the God who created light. I can say there will be darkness, and there will be darkness. So he's showing himself, right, as the true God, and revealing that they are false gods. And so that means we should be clear when the Lord says, no other gods before me, he's not saying, hey, you can worship other gods as long as I'm first in line, right? It's not like Zeus saying, look, I have to be the most important gods, but there are other gods, right? He's, he's, he is saying, worship me alone. I love this um, sort of translation, this take on no other gods before me from Robert Alter, a, a Hebrew scholar. He says, really, here's what God is saying when he says no other gods before me. He is saying, I am eternally. And so you must have no other God alongside me, instead of me, infringing on my eternal presence that brooks no successors. I'm the only God. Worship me alone. So again, if you want to hear no other God beside me, no other God instead of me. But it's clearly the Lord is saying, I am God and God alone. Now, even as we affirm this, and we must affirm this, we also need to acknowledge there are other spiritual powers. And even as we think about those other gods, right, that were being worshipped surrounding um, the nation of Israel, right, and again, the many other gods worshipped all around us, that there's a spiritual reality there, and there are spiritual powers at work, right? We see that very clearly in Scripture, right? There are evil spiritual forces. There are against spiritual forces. There are angels, and there are demons, and the reality of demonic activity, the reality that we have an enemy, that Satan wants to pull us away from the worship of the one true God, we can't deny that. We have to push into that and acknowledge that that's part of the dynamic. When the Lord says, no other gods before me, he is acknowledging there is a spiritual battle. Right? We see this right? when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Right? What is one of the temptations right, that comes against Jesus is, worship me. Right? Which, again, we read that and we think, that's crazy, right? I mean, why would Jesus be tempted to worship Satan? But Satan is basically saying, I offer you an easy way. Right? Not the way of the cross, not the way of sacrifice, but I actually offer you an easy way. Seemingly easy, right? He's lying, of course. Satan's a liar. But worship me, gain influence, gain power, and lose out, miss out on all the suffering. And, of course, what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. Basically, Jesus comes back with the first commandment. Of course, I will not worship you. I will have no other gods. Right? Jesus, of course, is God, God incarnate. But he's acknowledging the truth of the first commandment. Now, Satan, of course, is happy for us to worship all sorts of false gods. And so when we talk about spiritual battle, it's not just worship Satan or, you know, give in to occult practices, dark spirituality, although... That can be a very real temptation, and that can be a reality. But again, Satan's happy if we worship the God of success, if we worship the God of money, the God of sex, right? Things that in and of themselves can be good, but when they become gods, when they become the focus of our worship, right, ultimately enslave us and capture us. And again, this is what Satan wants, right? He wants, and demonic forces want, as long as we're worshiping anything other than the one true God, that's great. That's a win for them. So perhaps the first answer to that question, why would we be drawn to the worship of other gods, is there is a spiritual battle. There are spiritual forces at work. When we read that heartbreaking 2 Kings passage, 
and you get to near the end, verse 17, right? And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, right? You read that, and how can you deny that there was demonic activity happening there? That there were very powerful forces of evil at work drawing the Israelites away from worshiping the one true God. But even as we say that and affirm that, right, let's begin, be, be very clear, there is only one God. Satan is not the opposite of God. God has no opposite. He is uncreated. He is the only true God. Satan is a powerful enemy, and we have to acknowledge that, but his power compared to the power of Almighty God is minuscule. It is small. We know that our Lord has the victory. So acknowledge the spiritual battle, but also acknowledge that that battle has been won. We do not have to be afraid. So considering then that battle, what is the appeal? Why would we ever be drawn to the worship of false gods? Just a couple thoughts on that and things that we see that I believe the, the scriptures represent to us. One appeal, actually, in, in, the, in false gods and the worship of false gods is they offer us immediacy. They offer us something quick and immediate. And I believe that's a huge draw for us. Immediate power, immediate protection, immediate satisfaction. That, that I want something now. I feel an urgency, right? I need to have this. And the false god basically says, you can have it, right? Have it, right? Here it is for your offer, for your offering, for you to receive, and you will get immediate sense of, ah, I feel better, right? The, in the Philippians passage, Paul speaks about their God is their belly, right? He's not, I don't believe, saying people worship their own stomachs, right? Literally, but he is saying, right, what does that mean? Your God is your belly. It means I, I just want satisfaction. I want my belly to be filled. And when I feel hungry, it's like whatever I have to do to satisfy this satisfaction, give it to me. And again, that is the promise, the false promise of a false God. Another way of asking this, right, is why would we ever build our house on sand? Like why would that be a temptation to do that? I sort of had some insight into this a couple years ago, actually, at Church of the Cross, um, when we put in our, our new elevator, right? And the, um, the old elevator wasn't really even an elevator. <laughs> it was kind of questionable what you call it, but uh, it needed a lot of help. And so the new elevator actually was a pretty major restructuring. It, it goes up another floor. There was a lot of work to be done. Um, but as they began to work on that new elevator, what they found um, is that at the foundation and down where they were rebuilding the elevator, there was a lot of sugar sand which sounds kind of nice, like that sounds like a cool dessert, sugar sand, yummy. Well, it's a problem, actually, apparently, if you're building an elevator, and it's a lot of money to get rid of all this um, sugar sand um, that was down there, and apparently nobody wants to buy sugar sand. You can't, like, sell it uh, for lots of money. Um, now, if the people working on the elevator had said to me, hey, you know what, you've got all this sand down there, you really shouldn't build your elevator on, on top of sand, um, but you know what, like, yeah, you guys won't use the elevator that much, right? I mean, really, there's only, you know, things happening on Sunday, and, and it would be a lot cheaper if we just built it on top of the sand. So, you know, what do you think? You know, let, take the risk. Now, maybe I would have been tempted. Thankfully, we have wise, smart people at Church of the Cross that would never have allowed me to. But quite honestly, looking at the cost of removing that sand and considering, hey, there could be an immediate, actually, reward. You could save a lot of money. You know, you could cut some corners. You can see how that'd be a temptation, you can see how, you know, you're looking at a place of sand and saying, well, you know, there hasn't been storms for a while, and this sand actually feels very solid. Maybe it's kind of like rock. I'll just build my house here. And again, I think that's the temptation. That's the immediacy that the false gods offer us. Just cut some corners, and look, you can avoid a lot of problems, and just build your house right here. 
Any interaction we have with false gods is transactional. It's all about you give up this, right? You give this and look what you get back. And it looks good at first. Okay, I can give up a little bit, right? Maybe I can cut a few corners, I can give up a little, but what do I get back? I get back immediate satisfaction. But of course, that promise, right, that transaction is a lie. It is a lie in that actually what we give up is, is our very own freedom. What we're actually giving into is slavery. And what ultimately we get long-term is death. And that's why we say that promise of immediacy is actually to blind us to the fact that in the long-term, false gods offer us nothing. In the short-term, they actually offer us slavery. C.S. Lewis said this. It's always good to quote C.S. Lewis. It is the magician's bargain. Give up our soul and get power in return. But once our souls, that is ourselves, have been given up, the power thus conferred will not belong to us. We shall, in fact, be the slaves and the puppets of that to which we have given our souls. Right, so give in, right? Immediate satisfaction, immediate protection, immediate sense of, of comfort. And yet we've given into slavery. Thinking of a biblical example of this, that, um, uh, where um, someone refused to, to worship a false god, although an, a seemingly good offer was made to them, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story of the three men in the furnace. A familiar story, right? And you probably remember, they were told, worship this false god, right? And you will get life, right? Literally, because if you don't worship the false god, you will be put to death, Right, that was the promise made to them, a transaction. Right? If you give in to this, right, look what you get. You get your continued freedom. If you don't give in, you will be put to death. Right? But they understood, right? we can give in now and seem to be given life, but actually what we're given is death. Right? If we give in and we worship this false god, right, we are giving up our very selves. In the long run, we're still going to die. Right? And so they have those great, the great response. They say, oh God, our God, I'm sorry, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Right? They had faith. God is God. Right? He will deliver us now. Right? They actually were trusting in the immediacy of God's salvation. But then they say, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Right? They believed, again, in the immediacy of God's work and his saving power. But they were also saying, even if he doesn't save us, we won't worship your God because we know he has saved us, right? In him, we have life. And we can die now, right, worshiping him and knowing we have all eternity with him, or we can put off death and live a life of enslavement and ultimately die anyway. So what does this look like for us, right, who are probably not going to be ordered um, to worship false gods? Right? What does that temptation look like? Well, again, I mentioned, you know, the God of success. That, that can be a false god that we are tempted um, to, to worship, right? And of course, again, success isn't bad to do well in your work, to do well in your life and your endeavors, right? There can be great things that come from that. There can be influence. There can be more resources to give away, right? There's all sorts of reasons, right, that we can say, oh, God gives us success. But we know success has become a false god. We know it's become a source of worship when we begin to see, oh, I'm making sacrifices. This has become transactional, if I give up this, I get more success. I get more from my false God. And so when we start to realize, oh, I've given up time with my family. I've given up my integrity. I've started to do things that I never thought I would do because it brings me success. Then we know, oh, I'm starting to worship success as a God. 
And what sometimes happens in that, actually, is we may find ourselves, one may find themselves actually hating that false god and saying, I hate this god, right? I've given up so much to this god that all I get back is trouble and pain and yet being unable to let go of that false god. To actually feel like if I was to say no to this false god, if I was to stop worshiping this false god, I don't even know who I'd be anymore, right? I'm enslaved, right? I have to keep giving up to the false god even though I hate it. Many times, that's the dynamic that happens in the false worship. We do become enslaved, and our very identity, our very sense of um, life comes wrapped up. If I stop worshiping this false god, I don't even know how I will live. This is the, the entrapment. But again, what the Lord says to us is, I offer you eternal life. Not enslavement, but actually joy, an eternal joy. And so again, we can see, oh, I gave into the immediate Right? But actually, I have a Lord who is the Lord of all eternity. So we have eternal reward, eternal joy, and again, short-term freedom. But God is honest with us. Right? The reason that appeal for immediacy is so strong is God tells us right, there may be trouble in the short term. You actually may face difficulties. I work through those. I will even redeem those. But God is clear with us. Jesus said and the night before he died, in this life you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There are light and momentary troubles. But again, they're short compared to eternal glory. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. As Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we heard the end of it as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so in our true God, we have, yes, I will be honest with you, you're going to face suffering. You're going to face tribulations, but I'll actually work through those. I have overcome this world. And if you endure and you remain faithful to me, you have eternal joy, eternal life. That is against the lie of the immediate promise that the false gods offer us. And so there's immediacy that I believe false gods offer us, but then there's belonging. A second appeal is, worship me, turn to this false god, and you will belong. Now there's an irony there, right? Because it's like belonging. It's like, what? I am the Lord, your God, right? He's making it very clear as he begins the Ten Commandments, you belong to me. And he's speaking this to a people that he has redeemed, that he has adopted, that he has called his children. The passage we read last week, remember he says, I've carried you on eagle's wings, right? These images of love and care. And yet, we are tempted by this promise to belong, to be included, right? To to conform to others. Again, if you look at our our second Kings reading, it's so strong in there. Look at verse 8, right? They feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel and the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And then you jump down a few more verses. As the, um, they uh, made offerings on all the high places, verse 11, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. Right, so the Lord is saying, look, I, I you know, showed my power over these nations. I showed their weaknesses. I showed that I'm the one true God. And yet you adjusted to their customs. You actually wanted to be like them, even though I had made clear, right? Their gods failed them, and yet still you were drawn to imitate them. And the question we have to ask is, how do we feel that same draw, right? I want to fit in, right? The customs of this world, that's where what tells me that I belong, 
That's what tells me, right, that I'm good, right, that I'm affirmed, that I'm worthy. I think we like to think, or at least I like to think, you know, that sort of wanting to be with the cool kids, wanting to be part of the in crowd, that we grow out of that, that sort of, ah, you know, it's so good not to be an adolescent anymore, sorry to you adolescents, you know, but now I'm free from that. But then you realize, or at least I realize, I don't think I'm alone in this, right? I have moments where I still feel like a high schooler again, right? I still, I mean, I've been with other pastors where I feel like I'm not one of the cool kids. I mean, the most uncool people in the world are pastors, right? And even in that dynamic, I can feel a little bit like, man, do I fit in? Do I belong? It is so strong with us. And again, if you felt it, and I think you have, right? You know, it's just kind of, it's humbling, it's embarrassing, and yet it has such a strong draw. I want to know that I belong. And again, it's sort of an immediate belonging, isn't it? I want to know right now that I fit in. It's so strong, right, that the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom that this is speaking of in 2 Kings, it led to them being destroyed because they wanted to fit in, because they wanted to conform. And of course, the Lord had called them to holiness. As I talked about last week, holiness is basically saying, we do look different. We're supposed to look different because our God is different. He is holy. He is completely other And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we look different, when we feel like the odd man out, the odd woman out, because that's actually what the Lord has called us to, right? That's part of our identity. And once again, right, this is transactional, right? It's a transactional belonging. If you do this, you'll belong. If you do this, you'll fit in. You won't feel weird. You won't feel strange. You'll be one of the crowd. And that transaction is so powerful. But when we think about the Lord's belonging, about his words of belonging to us, those are not transactional those are covenantal. Right? The covenant is not a transaction right, that the Lord makes with us. The covenant is an invitation into relationship. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of slavery. I brought you into my family. I have adopted you. You belong to me. Now this is how we live. This is how we live out our identity together. Right? This is how we live out our relationship together. So it was transactions about what can I get out of it. Covenant is about who am I and who is this one that I'm in relationship with. And so when you look at the prophets, right, when they speak of, you know, the uh, nation of Israel going after false gods, what's the image that's used again and again in the prophets to invite people to turn away from false gods, right? You remember, it's, it's an image of marriage. It's an image of you're like an unfaithful spouse. You're like, you know, you've turned away to these other lovers, but I'm, I'm your spouse. I'm, I'm your husband. Why would you follow after these other gods? So that captures, right? It's about relationship. The Lord doesn't say, you're like bad customers, you know, who haven't kept your end of the bargain. No, you're like unfaithful spouses. And he uses a lot of even stronger language than that. So it covers that. So we have that, you know, relationship. um, But another image that's used, and we see that um, in our Philippians passage of belonging, is citizenship. Verse 20 in the Philippians passage here on page um, 7. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear in that, again, both the waiting element, right, the resistance against that draw of immediacy, but also the belonging element. Our citizenship, our home is in heaven. And that's a helpful image, right? What does it mean to be in relationship with the covenantal God who has called us into his family? Is to have a home, a place of belonging. Right? This is where we live. Right? And just as parents right, need to teach their kids right, the rules of the home, how we act in our home, that's how we act outside of the home, right? And if people think you're weird and strange, you just say, hey, this is who I am, right? This is what I learned. This is what I grew up in. That's um, what uh, Paul is saying here. Our citizenship, our home is in heaven. And that affects how we live, right? That affects our belonging and where we belong. 
in the um, book of Hebrews, if you remember in chapter 11, that celebrates the great heroes of the faith, those who remain faithful to the Lord. It says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So here in that, again, right, um, the, not having received the things promised, right, they were willing to wait. They were willing to have an eternal perspective to say, ultimately, there's something greater that I'm waiting for that tells me and strengthens me to say no to the immediate transactional um, uh, offerings that the false gods give me and a sense of home, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Right? My ultimate home is in heaven, and therefore I am going to feel strange. Therefore I am going to feel like the odd person out because I am the odd person out, right? Because my citizenship, my home is in heaven. And so my encouragement is we, again, maybe hear that pull, that draw of the false gods pulling us away from the Lord. It's just to stand in two really simple but profound truths. And maybe at times we even need to say these out loud, right? In times of prayer, maybe when we feel that draw, that pull, to just stand firm and to say, I have eternal life. Such a simple truth and so important. Yes, there's an immediate sort of offering to me that maybe would make me feel in the short term satisfied and empowered, but will enslave me, and I don't need to say yes to that because I have eternal life. And the second thing is, I am a child of God. I'm a beloved child of God. I have a home in the Lord. And so that sense of belonging, that false belonging, that transactional, transactional belonging that's offered, we can say no. Let's pray. Lord, we know... It is your kindness and your love that calls us to turn away from false gods and to worship you and you alone. I just pray right now, Lord, through your spirit, that you would strengthen us, to stand firm in who we are in you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an eternal perspective when the immediate is so um, uh, quick and so powerful to draw us in. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our identity as your sons and your daughters they remind us that our ultimate home is in you. And Lord, I pray that when we feel out of place, when we feel strange in this world, that we would be, know the reminder from you that that's okay. That's actually because we belong to you. And Lord, we give you thanks. We are thankful that we can have this time where we gather together and we worship you. Thank you for that, Lord. And we give you all thanks and praise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's good.